you would like to uh, turn, it's uh, 2 Timothy 4, beginning with verse 17, the last verses of, <clears throat> of 2 Timothy. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesephorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left at Miletus. Make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you, also Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. I think it's very appropriate that Carl was the one who read the scripture tonight because the last time I ever heard this particular passage preached on, in fact, in a lesson entitled Come Before Winter, in fact, the only time I've ever heard this passage preached on, it was Carl that did it, and it was an absolutely fantastic lesson. But enough about Carl. (laughs) Thank you for being here tonight. It is an interesting study in demographics tonight. How many of you are over the age? No, I just won't do that. (laughs) But thank you so very much for for your spiritual concern for being here tonight. Some of you may be planning on going over to the picnic for a few minutes after this is over, but I appreciate so very much your your being here. And I can certainly relate. I can remember when, even though it's been many, many years ago, I can remember when one of my favorite places to go was Six Flags Over Georgia. It was on the west side of Atlanta. We were on the east side in Gwinnett County. That's where we raised our kids for the most part. And, uh, of course, they loved to go. And I loved taking them. But I can remember almost specifically the day I could circle it on the calendar when I realized I don't like this place. I am so tired. If I just could find a place to lie down, that's the ride that I would like to be on. So anyway, that's, that's when you start. Since, and the next day I got my first AARP letter. But anyway. This is intended to be an abbreviated uh, service. And this will be intended to be abbreviated lesson. Uh, It kind of reminds me of an older preacher who one time said, uh, I have never heard a lesson that I did not get something from. And then as an afterthought, he said, but I've had some mighty close calls. And tonight, I hope that you will will get something from this. It's a a wonderful passage. It almost brought tears to my eyes just hearing Carl read this, knowing that this is the last words that the Apostle Paul ever wrote. He was in a cold prison cell in Rome. That this old gospel preacher, this aging apostle, bends over a stone table with quill in hand, inkwell nearby. Decades of love and memories are going into the few words that he's writing, which will eventually, of course, become the 16th book of the New Testament. The aged apostle Paul writes verses 9 through 13. If you've got your Bible, follow alone. Do your best to get here quickly. Verse 10, Demas has forsaken me, 
Having loved this present world and is departed for Thessalonica, Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for my ministry. And Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus, and when you come, could you bring my books and my notes? I believe that Paul, and I know that there are commentators who agree with me, or maybe I should say I agree with them, that Paul is fully cognizant of the fact that he's going to die in this jail cell. But he'll die while still learning and studying the Word of God to the very end. I think if there was no other takeaway from this lesson than that one, that should be valuable. Paul says, I am to the very end going to be a student of God's, of God's book, studying to the end. Perhaps a sudden chill also pierces his body in that perhaps dank prison cell because almost as an afterthought in verse 13, he adds, and bring my coat that I left in Troas. Someone has says he needs a coat for the warmth for the body, but he needs God's word for fire for the soul. And that's exactly right. There's that balance that's achieved by God's people. It's easy, I think, to infer from these passages that what Paul needed and wanted most was companionship. I don't think I'm the only one that can read this second letter that he wrote and, and sense that he's lonely. He, he wants somebody, and most importantly, people who are precious to him to be by his side at this juncture in his life. And so he writes in verse 16, at my first trial, no one was there to defend me. They had all forsaken me, and I pray that it may not be held against them. There's that character, that sterling quality of Paul coming out. Even though he's lonely, he's praying that that won't be held against them, the fact that no one was there to, to defend him in his first trial. And during that time, Paul remembers that that Jesus was also abandoned by his closest friends and that he too suffered alone as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Paul has come to understand that isolation, I think, in a very personal way. But he, but he handles the pain of desertion with the same remarkable grace and poise as did the Son of God. He continues to write in verses 17 through 22, Will you follow along with me? But the Lord stood by my side. He gave me strength so that I could keep preaching even though, and this is a paraphrase, even though I'm, I'm in jail. I think, no, I pray that I can keep preaching for a little while longer. But winter is coming. No ships will be sailing again until spring. I don't know what's going to happen. So could you hurry? Try to get here before winter. After then, I fear to be too late. I remember your tears at our last parting. I'd like to look upon your face one last time. Again, a paraphrase of, of verses 17 through 21. If you will, first consider with me the writer. The story of Paul takes your mind back, I think, to chapters 7 through 9 of the book of Acts. That's where we're first introduced to this great man. At the time, however, you know that he was not a proclaimer of the gospel. You know that he was an opponent of the gospel and the cause of Christ and everything that it stood for. He started out as Saul the persecutor, a strict Pharisee who believes that Jesus is a fake, that he's a phony, that he is an imposter of the worst sort. And we get our first glimpse of Saul as he offers his support to that angry mob that's stoning Stephen there in Acts the seventh, seventh chapter. And, and Saul is, is, is a participant in the execution of one of the first Christian martyrs. Imagine that. How would you like to know that your biography would be written and the very first chapter would deal with the fact that you are opposing the cause of Christ? No wonder Paul for the rest of his life would say, and I am the chief of sinners he knew that he was forgiven. I think he knew full well that God had forgiven him of that atrocity, but he never forgot that. That was always a part of his being. But something amazing happens when Saul is on the road to kill Christians. And you can start reading about that in Acts the ninth chapter. 
Jesus himself appears to him on the Damascus Road. He's converted. His whole life changes in the space of 72 hours. Can you imagine how that your worldview is set on its side because of what Jesus said to him on that road? In Damascus, the Bible says that Ananias, one of God's messengers, preaches to, to Saul and baptizes him to Christ. And then from that point forward, Paul begins to preach the Christ that he once so avidly had opposed. Three missionary journeys would soon follow. On the second of those journeys, he picks up a young man by the name of Timothy as an intern. Timothy's mother is Jewish. His father is Greek. Probably Paul has in mind that this man would be good. He could go into either community, and so he would be a very capable apprentice, one who would carry on his mission when Paul was no longer able to do that. And that moment came a lot sooner than Paul could ever have imagined. The time to pass the mantle down to his young protege, Timothy. And that's because Paul is arrested. He's thrown into jail in Jerusalem. But the Bible record says that's not the only time he did time. He also spends time in jail in Caesarea and now here in Rome. Second Timothy, if I may say from a personal perspective, is most likely the last book that Paul ever wrote. And it is a tearjerker. If you know what Timothy is facing, and if you come to know the close relationship that Timothy and the love that Timothy had for Paul and that Paul had for Timothy, you can't read this without getting emotional. He composed it from a lonely prison cell in Rome that's already been established. But by that time, Timothy and Paul had become close. They were like a father and a son. In fact, Paul does refer to him as my son in the gospel. It reminds me somewhat even of the bond between the Lord Jesus Christ and his heavenly father. That's almost as close as that relationship was. And Paul probably had more to do with Timothy's upbringing than any other earthly man. It's really a beautiful letter written from father to son. And so I would challenge you from this time forward, when you read 2 Timothy, think of it in that way. Secondly, consider the plea. I was once urged to read 2 Timothy not just once, but every day for 30 days. And whoever it was, I don't even remember who offered the challenge at the time, said, if you'll do that, it will change your life as a minister of the gospel. And he was right about that. I read it from a number of different translations, different uh, translations for different days, every day for 30 days. And I have been in love with this little book ever since. Not only is it filled with emotional and spiritual instruction and advice, But it challenges every one of us as God's people to give our best to the God who then in turn has given his best to us. As you look at its pages, you see that Paul's plea to Timothy to come before winter. And that plea haunts me. I think it's laden with emotion, but it's also laden with what lies before Timothy. Paul has encountered the threat of death a number of times during his service to Jesus. That's not foreign to him. He knows what it's like to look death in the face. And he isn't afraid to die, but he would just like one more visit from Timothy before he goes to be with the Lord. It's almost winter, and soon the ships won't be able to leave port. It's simply too dangerous to sail in the winter months. More than once, ships have tried to beat nature, but they wound up on the bottom of the sea. And Paul has been in three shipwrecks already himself, has spent more than a a day and a night in the ocean waters. And he knows that if Timothy is going to come to see him, it needs to be now. The window of opportunity is quickly closing. And so Paul urges Timothy to do so before that opportunity passes. 
Now, we'll never know this side of eternity whether Timothy got there. The Bible just doesn't tell us. We don't know that page at the end of this powerful book. Did Paul go friendless to the grave? Or did Timothy stand by his side as he was beheaded for the cause of Christ? We do know, however, that that time is running out for every one of us. That's the impression that I want to make on you tonight. This isn't just a historical study and an insight of the Apostle Paul and the fact that in his waning years he recognized that death was close. I'm here to remind each one of us that our time on this earth is limited. And it doesn't matter if you're five years old or 95. Our time is limited. And there's windows of opportunity that we have that we can do God's will and we can render specific areas of service in our lives, but that window will soon close. Either because the opportunity itself passes or because life has passed us by. As William Golden writes in one of his hymns, Life's evening sun is sinking low. A few more days and I must go. And that's certainly a biblical thought. I'm suggesting that now is the time. When kids leave home for college, they tell their parents all the usual things. Parents are concerned primarily with their spiritual interests, but they're also interested in making sure that that connection between mom and dad and son or daughter is not lost. And so they make them promise all of those things about what you'll do when you get to college, and and the child promises, I'll write, I'll text, I'll email, I'll whatever, tweet and, and Instagram and all the other avenues of communication that we have these days. And yet oftentimes when they get into that new world with their studies and the new life, they forget to do those things and they don't stay in touch. Our grandparents and even our parents age in front of our very eyes. We plan to spend more time with them. And we often say to ourselves, I need to get over to see them soon. But time is both swift and relentless. And before we know it, our parents are gone. And we're left only with our good intentions. Paul Harvey, many of you know, spoke once of going to the funeral of his own mother. His position and his prosperity allowed him to do many nice things for her, materially speaking, like build her a wonderful house and all the rest. But Paul said one time, I didn't do the little things. How she would have appreciated an occasional call, a little remembrance, just a hug or a kiss more often than I did. It reminds me of a poem by Henson Town that's entitled Around the Corner. And it goes like this, around the corner I have a friend in this great city that has no end. And yet the days go by and the weeks rush on and before I know it, a year is gone. And I never see my old friend's face, for life is a swift and terrible race, and and he knows I like him just as well as in the days when I rang his bell, and he rang mine. We were younger then, and now we're busy and tired old men, tired with playing a foolish game, tired with trying to make a name. Tomorrow, I say, I'll call on Jim just to show him that I'm thinking of him, but tomorrow comes, and tomorrow goes, and the distance between us grows and grows. Around the corner, yet miles away. Here's a telegram, sir. Jim died today. And that's what we get and deserve in the end. Around the corner, a vanished friend. Parents, I implore you tonight, seize opportunities to spend time with your kids. Are you hearing me? If your kiddos are still in your house, value those opportunities, treasure those opportunities that you can spend time with your kids because they will soon be gone. I love the story of the little boy that was trying to catch his father's attention. 
He stood by his father's chair. His dad was enthralled in the newspaper after work one day. The little boy had a baseball and a baseball glove, and he kept pounding the ball into the glove and imploring his dad to go in the backyard and play pitch with him. The father didn't want to be bothered. And finally, the little boy, in exasperation, said, either play me or trade me. And that's the way they feel sometimes. Irma Bombeck once told the story about a boy named Mike. When he was three, he wanted a sandbox, and his dad said, it'll kill the grass. His mom, with wisdom, said, the grass will come back. And when Mike was five, he wanted a jungle gym in the backyard. And again, his dad came back with a tired old refrain. We'll have kids all over the place and they'll tear everything up and the grass will die for sure. And again, mom came back with a refrain. The grass will come back. Later on, he wanted to have a camp out in the backyard. And then he asked for a basketball goal. And so it goes as we cycle through life. And each time, Mike's dad was worried primarily about the grass. But each time, Mike's mom would always say, it'll grow back. And then one summer, the lawn was neatly cut, edged, and manicured. But Mike's dad never really saw it. What he did was stare out into the backyard with lonely eyes and ask the empty room, he will come back, won't he? Remember, come before winter. Opportunities that are given to each of us as priceless gifts that we will either open and enjoy and use at the moment or we will lose forever. So go life cycles. The spring of hope gives way to the summer of opportunity. Summer slips into the fall of passing chance. Winter comes, as Paul said, all too soon, and it's too late to say I'm sorry, too late to say I love you, too late to say please forgive me. Now is the time to seize our opportunities. Repent of that sin that you're harboring in your heart and life. Start back to church. Commit your life to Jesus again, if that's what you need to do tonight to get right with God. An old hymn by William Kirkpatrick, I think, says it well. I've wandered far away from God, but now I'm coming home. But you need to hurry, because winter is coming. Now, one final question for your consideration. Suppose Timothy was like us. He meant to go see Paul, but something always came up. Have you ever used that refrain? I really intended to do this or that, but something always came up. What if that was Timothy's mentality? Maybe he finally determined to go, but when he goes down to the dock to catch the next ship to Rome, he discovers that it's too late, that winter has already set in. The ships have been pulled into dry dock for protection from the coming inclement winter weather, and immediately... Immediately, panic begins to overtake Timothy as he realizes that that opportunity has been lost. So he goes to the captain of the nearest ship and he says, I want passage on the first ship of spring. Book it now. I've got to get to Rome, you see. My mentor is there. He is my dear father and my friend. And maybe he does manage to sail on the first ship of spring, but he's lost four, four important long months. And he strains every mile of the trip as if his anticipation would allow him to get there sooner. And finally, he reaches the port in Rome. He gets directions to the Caesar Correctional Facility. Let's call it that. He races down the hall to Paul's cell, and he tells the jailer, I want to see Paul. I'm his son, Timothy. And the jailer said, oh, yes. I know who you are. Paul spoke of you often. He said that you were like a son to him. He was executed last month. His last words to you were to tell you that he loved you. Timothy turns away from that scene as tears burn his eyes. And he has to wonder, why didn't 
I come sooner. I want, and, and, and I mean, I really, really want to believe that Timothy made it to see Paul before he died. Don't you? I hope that there was a grand reunion of those two men. But whether he did or not, Paul's plea, come to por- before winter, still speaks to every one of us today. Our fault is not that we want to do wrong. We've got good intentions. We mean to get around to it, but winter comes too quickly for so many of us. You can avoid having regrets by living in the now. As Jesus said in Matthew six thirty four, living one day at a time. Realize the value of time. Be aware that it's slipping away at a tremendous rate. And live each day fully and do what ought to be done before it's too late to do it. And most of all, take the inspired advice of Paul and do your utmost to come before winter. If you need to get right with God, don't do it tomorrow. Do it right now while we stand, while we sing.